It's a pleasure to be back here uh, with the National Council uh, as the chair of, of this year's Defense Cooperation Panel. Um, particularly uh, uh, nice to hear uh, General Austin's remarks um, and, and be here to discuss these issues at a time when many observers uh, are sort of increasingly questioning whether the positive uh, patterns of cooperation that the general discussed uh, will continue uh, or how they may evolve uh, and what such an evolution may mean for the shared interests uh, uh, that the general addressed. Uh, my remarks and interventions today are made in my personal capacity um, and don't represent those of the Congressional Research Service. Uh, but I'm joined here today uh, by uh, three very able colleagues, uh, uh, close participants in and observers of uh, defense issues and defense relations in the region. Uh, to my left, your right, uh, Professor David DeRoche is a senior military fellow at the NISA Center at NDU. Uh, and previously served as a director for defense policy for the GCC in Yemen. An airborne uh, ranger officer in the Army Reserve, he was awarded the Bronze Star for service in Afghanistan and has commanded uh, special operations and conventional parachute units in addition to serving on the SOCOM and Joint Staff. To my left, your, uh, to my right, your left, uh, Professor Bob Sharp, the NISA Center's Yemen and Lebanon hand, uh, and former assistant professor for international security affairs at NDU, his experience includes 25 years uh, as a British military officer, during which he served in command and staff roles in operations in Northern Ireland, Kosovo, the Gulf War, Afghanistan, and Cyprus. Uh, and our distinguished commentator for today's panel, uh, all the way uh, to my left, Dr. Janet Breslin-Smith, whose 30-year public service career includes leadership roles in the Senate, professional military uh, higher education at NDU, where she served as a professor of national security strategy for 14 years at the National War College, chair as the Department of National Security Strategy, and a 17-year career uh, in the United States Senate, working uh, as legislative director for Senator Leahy on national security, foreign policy, and appropriations issues. And uh, as many of you know, most recently, uh, Dr. Breslin-Smith accompanied her husband, Ambassador Smith, uh, to Saudi Arabia during their four-year diplomatic posting. Um, before we get fully started, I'll just make some, some brief observations uh, to sort of frame today's discussion as chair. Uh, overall, I think in spite of headlines, in spite of rhetoric, uh, and in spite of the emerging tensions uh, that many of you are concerned with, uh, I believe that we continue to see uh, more continuity and positivity uh, than change and negativity in U.S.-Arab defense relations. U.S. interests in the region, as the general outlined, remain largely unchanged. And I believe that uh, Arab governments in the region continue to see the United States as an essential, if not, uh, or if often perhaps uh, exasperating presence on the regional security scene. Um, in his recent speech uh, to the UN General Assembly, President Obama uh, underscored the willingness of the United States to use uh, all elements of national power in the region. Uh, the general just reiterated uh, that policy statement uh, and described core interests uh, that you're all familiar with. Um, I think as regional developments continue to create complications for the United States and its partners, though, there's a rich agenda for us to discuss today, and I'm sure that, uh, that our speakers will help us do that. Uh, for example, uh, in states that have experienced uh, political change and unrest, like Libya, efforts to reconstitute national military and security forces are in their earliest stages. Security officers are targeted by anonymous assailants. Local militia groups remain powerful arbiters on the national security agenda. Uh, national authority is contested. International support is often used with skepticism, uh, and a series of complex issues confront the United States and its partners in the region. 
in the Gulf, patterns of large-scale uh, military sales uh, and weapons purchases include, uh, continue and have expanded to include planned investments in ballistic missile defense and upgraded air warfare and transport capabilities. Cornerstone U.S. programs of engagement with key regional states like Saudi Arabia continue and appear set to continue uh, with long-term contracts that will carry partnership forward for years, if not decades. Nevertheless, a range of issues have created some dissonance uh, in U.S. security relations with the Gulf, including differences of opinion over U.S. policy in Bahrain, Egypt, and Syria. Coupled with the deterioration of security in the Levant uh, and in Iraq, and the potential for change in the tenor of U.S.-Iranian relations, the forecast for the future may prove more turbulent than the successes of the past uh, would suggest. In Egypt, the change of government has led the administration and Congress to conduct a thorough and ongoing review of current assistance. Rather than the widely reported wholesale change uh, in content or a fundamental break, but it remains to be seen how Congress and the administration will choose to act concerning appropriations for future assistance, most immediately for the full year uh, appropriation for FY14 and next year's appropriation, and what steps Egyptian authorities may take to respond to what they've described as, quote, turmoil in an uh, important and long-established partnership. As I said, uh, to address these issues, we have a fine panel assembled here today. Uh, we'll start with uh, Professor uh, DeRoche, and uh, if you could... Uh, um, either address from here or up here as you as you prefer. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher. Uh, I'd like to thank the uh, conference organizers, Dr. Anthony, Mr. Bosch, of course, Pat Mancino, the uh, man in motion, uh, distinguished scholars, ambassadors, businessmen, and of course, uh, Colonel Sinnott, my brother in arms uh, in Bosnia and uh, Colonel Stickney, a uh, veteran of many a parachute jump with me. Thank you for being here today. Um, I also do not speak for the United States government, for the National Defense University, for the U.S. Department of Defense, and indeed probably not even credibly for myself. So these are um, not official comments, but rather my observations. I'm going to speak about arms sales in a time of transition. General Austin spoke about the importance of building partner capacity and protecting our lines of communications. The Central Command 10-year strategy, which was just released in the past month, emphasizes these points. What this means in practice are two things. First off, that the United States is retrenching somewhat, but secondly, the United States will maintain an interest in the Middle East, particularly in the Persian Gulf. Um, and that pivot, the much spoken of pivot, a pivot requires you to have a point that you sit down on that is between where you're pivoting from and where you're pivoting to. And that pivot point, I would argue, is the Persian Gulf. If you look at the U.S. force laydown after 2014, after Afghanistan is there, from Germany to South Korea, the largest Facing of U.S. forces will be in the countries of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Um, <clears throat> another thing that we'll see in the area, of course, is the rapprochement in Iran. My colleagues uh, at the NISA Center have often uh, criticized me for lapsing into French uh, in times of stress or fatigue, so I wish to point out here that the English word for rapprochement is rapprochement. Um, <laughs> 
the, the rapprochement with Iran is a fact, uh, but as uh, Prince Turkey showed you, it is not one that is universally greeted with acclaim in the region, and it will require careful diplomatic messaging, something with which the United States has proven adept in the past. Wait for laughter. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thirdly, there's instability in Syria, Egypt, and Lebanon, uh, as well as other places. This, this instability, uh, you know, will not get better. It may burn itself out, but it will not get better on its own. And it's, it's a condition, it is more likely to continue than it is to come to a happy resolution. So it's something that we are going to have to manage and seek to mitigate. Fourth point, this is probably one of the last chances that we'll get for a meaningful Arab-Israeli agreement and a Palestinian-Israeli settlement. And the reason for that, I would argue, are demographic trends in the Israeli population. Uh, the traditional uh, population in Israel that, you know, it sees itself Western-looking, that harkens back to the Ben-Gurion ideals, they are becoming a smaller and smaller percentage of the Israeli population, and, and it just doesn't look good. Meanwhile, the situation in parts of uh, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas-administered territories are just not getting better in the way that they should. Um, fifth, the U.S. is and probably will remain the world's largest arms exporter by value, although I would argue not by lethality or by disruptiveness. Uh, there are many democracies which have an ethical arms export policy, but they're not really large arms exporters. The U.S. is the only large arms exporter that actually will refrain from a trade if they think that there's major, major human rights violations or the potential to exacerbate a regional arms race. You know. Sweden, Denmark, these, these other countries, they will do the same thing, but they just are not in the same league as we are. China, on the other hand, will sell um, and has sold uh, automatic weapons to Sudan, you know, for use in Darfur. Even though the value, monetarily value of those is very small, you know, one one thousandth, say, of the sale the, of the cost of a sale of THAAD to uh, Japan, uh, the theater high-altitude air defense, the potential for destabilization and bloodshed from that smaller monetary investment is way out of proportion to the U.S. And then the final point uh, of the environment is that the U.S. arms exporting regime is not fit for purpose. Quite frankly, our body of laws and practices governing the export of arms is designed to impede arms sales, not promote arms sales. And this is in direct contrast to some of our uh, partners and commercial rivals, such as, say, the United Kingdom, uh, which has joined up government, where when an arms sales is considered by uh, the cabinet, the Ministry of Defense, in the same breath, they say, and this means 200 jobs in Glamorgan, Wales. Nobody in the Department of Defense or Department of State takes those considerations into account. They're just not responsible for it. They're just not responsible for it. That is extraordinary and almost unique within the world. So how do I put this context into the points I want to make? Well, I was a speechwriter for seven years for a number of... Uh, cabinet officials and general officers, and the lazy speechwriter's best friend is the good, the bad, and the ugly. For some reason, this spaghetti western has uh, just a collective grip on our imagination, and it provides a, a beautiful organizational structure for just about any subject. So I am going to talk about, or about, as we say in the United States, the good, the bad, and the ugly. First, the good. 
We are in a revolutionary period this month. The U.S. has finally overcome our squeamishness over the sale of standoff weapons, that is, weapons that have an over-the-horizon capability and a 100-kilometer-plus range, to our allies in the Gulf. This is something that our allies in the Gulf have asked for for years. It has impeded potential weapon sales uh, because some of our commercial allies um, have offered over-the-horizon weapon sales, standoff weapon sales, and we have not. We've not done that for a number of reasons. One is because of our concern over the qualitative military edge with Israel, and the second is because we're concerned about introducing new weaponry into the region. Uh, but we've managed to overcome those I'm guessing in a lot of um, intense dialogue with the Israelis, and it is no coincidence that the um, sales of Slammy R&J to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates were announced at the same time that the uh, sale of Osprey and aerial tankers uh, was announced to Israel. Um, so uh, I think any objective observer would conclude that there was a quid pro quo there, uh, but that's fine. Uh, basically, the Rubicon has been crossed, and what this means is that uh, QME has been addressed for standoff, as I argue it should have been done six years ago. Uh, our partners in the Gulf will now have the ability to operate militarily as peer partners with us with a true standoff precision targeting capability for their aircraft. And perhaps most importantly, this advance provides our partners a measure of security uh, and confidence that sets the stage for an Iran rapprochement. If uh, our diplomatic task of engaging Iran would be much, much, much more difficult if we did not provide these concrete levels of security assurances that are within their realm, not, not a promise that we'd use it, something that they can use if we did not do that. Um, so this, this, I think, will go a long way towards uh, allaying some of the concerns expressed by Prince Turkey, inshallah. And what we've seen from this is that partners who have not had a major interest in buying U.S. weaponry, particularly through the foreign military sales system, are now becoming interested. So uh, I've heard rumors that Cutter may uh, move from purchasing French major end items, which in times of crisis allows you to be militarily interoperable with the French, which means if you have a crisis, you just have to wait about 40 days for the Charles de Gaulle to sail from Toulon, fix their propeller, go back to Toulon, put in a new propeller, sail again, and then you can interact with your ally there with the Rafale. Um, we're also hearing rumors of Kuwait weapon upgrades, which uh, may be major U.S. weapon systems. Uh, the Saudi F-15 deal, which is a groundbreaking deal uh, in its terms of magnitude and in terms of tying our military culture together. Uh, the most important contribution, I would argue, of the Saudi F-15 deal, which was announced two years ago, is that we now have another generation of Saudi pilots who are going to learn English. And the importance of that cannot be underestimated. Um, and the Royal Saudi Air Defense Forces modernization. Uh, this is a really good move. What this means is that rather than buy new missiles, the Saudis have chosen to spend some serious money to upgrading their existing missiles, bringing them up to spec. And I think it reflects the uh, priorities that we've seen under King Abdullah, where there's been some shifting of uh, emphasis towards sustaining capacity that's already there rather than buying new weapon systems. 
another incidental benefit of that is that the Saudis in the air defense modernization case specified that they want to have professional military education for their air defense forces held at our institute, the Near East South Asia Center. That is a very, very prescient and uh, wise investment in human capital, which uh, is unprecedented in the region. And I think a very good thing. Professor Sharp may speak more about that. Now let's talk about the bad. And uh, since this is America and we have a culture of introspection, almost all of my bad stuff will deal with the United States. First off, um, what we've seen in the last two years, a rigid U.S. adherence to our arms export restrictions have led to the alienation of a key ally in Bahrain. Um, we have applied our regulations and rules to Bahrain's detriment and I would argue to our own detriment because what we've seen happen, a country that has, we have no better ally than Bahrain, but the, the restrictions that we've made have allowed us to feel good about ourselves but they've had little practical input impact other than emboldening those in Bahrain who we don't want emboldened, basically the hardliners. What we have done is shown ourselves to be an unreliable ally by restricting the export of some commodities and it has had almost no practical effect on the Bahrainis because rather than buy Humvees which have a wide wheelbase, they went out and bought Turkish APCs which have no export restrictions that actually have a narrower wheelbase and are more suited for moving around there. Similarly, um, uh, riot control agents have been produced, procured from Brazil. So we feel good about it but we've, we've alienated this and we've emboldened the hardliners uh, in the Bahraini government who we want to compromise. Um, not a good thing and we've done it through an overly aggressive interpretation of our laws. The second ugliness is, in direct contrast to this, the amazingly flexible interpretation of U.S. laws in the case of Egypt, or as I call it, the coup that dare not speak its name. Um, Prince Turkey, were he here, would probably slap me for that, but um, um, I don't know how an objective observer could describe it otherwise. In Egypt, we have managed to gain no leverage, have no impact on Egyptian actions, and have undermined our reputation as a nation of laws uh, by deciding that we didn't have to determine if a coup took place. If we don't have to determine it for Egypt, why do we have to determine that a human rights violation took place in Bahrain? The Bahrainis would be quite justified in asking. Um, our, what happened then, after not determining if it was a coup, we then turned around and decided to stop the export of key spare parts and weapon systems. So what we've managed to do is compromise our virtue, then seek to regain our virtue after it has been compromised in an action which has had almost no impact on the ruling authorities in Egypt. Basically, our virtue is sullied, and the louder we insist that it isn't, the more silly our actions look. So what is the way out for this? Well, what I would argue is that now is the time to overhaul our Cold War era body of laws. The Arms Export and Control Act is older than I am. Okay, look at me. I have no hair. I have a hearing aid. I can barely walk. <laughs> the time is ripe for this export of controls, of arms export controls. First off, we have declining domestic spending domestic defense spending. Uh, if we have any growth in our defense sector, it is probably going to be overseas, and we need to have a supportive body of laws in order to nurture that defense base, or it will evaporate. They will go from making combat aircraft to making toasters, VCRs, and the George Foreman grill. 
Secondly, Congress is in record low esteem right now. I don't know if any of you have noticed that, but uh, I was gifted with a week of working as a bartender, and uh, uh, I think they need to show some improvement. This is a technical thing which both parties in power have decried. This is something that Congress can take action on relatively easy. Third one, Congress needs to show some success before the midterms. People in America are fed up. Uh, and this is something they can do. It is a bipartisan issue, and there is a strong link to domestic jobs, and we have not seen any real improvement in domestic jobs um, uh, in the last six years. So, you know, these are good, well-paid union jobs for the most part in the defense industry. So that's the good and the bad. Now, if you've been paying attention, you'd say, all right, you promised us the ugly. Where is it? Well, I'll be followed by Professor Sharp. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding as always, my friend, my late friend, Dave DeRoche. Thank you. Um, thanks to the National Council for the invitation and for putting on uh, a great event, again, which they do every single year. Um, also, best wishes to my fellow uh, speakers and moderator, apart from my late friend, Dave DeRoche. Um, like most people, I speak for myself, not for the NISA Centre where I work, the Department of Defence or our government. Um, but the words I'm going to say today were recently published in a, an article in the Small Walls Journal of the 17th of October. And the title is, Call Them Sticks and Carrots, or Direct and Indirect, or Hard and Soft Power Approaches, Either way, we are at a strategic inflection point, and I would ask you to consider whether you think there is merit in, uh, in the words I'm now going to share with you. Now, since September of last year, I have travelled to Yemen and Qatar, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Israel, Jordan, the United Arab Emirates, and also to Palestine, uh, both Ramallah and Jericho, in my capacity as a professor at NISA. And many of these countries uh, are entrenched by their history, which, of course, is something that we need to understand. Very much a point made by General Austin. I've also been involved in several programs uh, run by the NISA Centre here in Washington, D.C., where about six times a year we gather two representatives from each of the countries that we're responsible for over a period of about two weeks and we brainstorm security issues. And we do that under conditions of academic freedom and also Chatham House rule. So we can say what we want and no one quotes us on what we say and in so doing we discuss and share our experiences. Now we then provide for policymakers and our stakeholders uh, views and perspectives derived from that interaction. And so, you know, using General Austin's words from, the, from uh, earlier today, you know, as a point of reference, we are involved in developing strategic leverage uh, and also uh, gaining local knowledge uh, and applying that to our informed uh, view of history. Um, now, our area of responsibility broadly covers CENTCOMs 
and we are arguably their line of development for education. Um, and in most of my engagements, we have been involved in developing security sector or professional military education. But, but while I've been traveling and while I've been listening in the classroom and talking, I've reflected on sticks and carrots, direct or indirect, hard and soft power approaches that we have employed as our foreign policy. And as we draw down in Iraq and Afghanistan, I've come to the conclusion that our sticks, our hard power, which we generally execute directly, um, are becoming increasingly lethal, and that our carrots, our soft power, which we execute generally indirectly, are looking, well, I would say, a little limp and maybe even a little bit rotten. And I sense that we're at this strategic inflection point where we need to boost our carrots, our indirect, our soft power approaches, otherwise our global influence will further wane from where it is now. So consider the case study of the so-called Arab Spring. You know, in my view, it's not strictly Arab, nor is it a season, much less a spring. Uh, my travels and reflections convince me that we are witnessing what I call a worldwide human transition. Putting it in Huntingdon terms, uh, it's a clash of have and have-nots, and those clashes have been ingrained in history. Mass protests in Europe and Turkey and indeed Brazil, and you could argue the US Occupy movement, demonstrate this is just not Arab. Um, and labelling it for them doesn't help either. So in Western democracies, where rights are backed up with value for human dignity, rule of law, the transition is occurring relatively peacefully. In the Arab world, the transition is being managed, in some cases very intelligently, by countries that I would describe, although not necessarily name, as benevolent monarchies. In the less benevolent monarchy, monarchy category, the issues are more about power, resources, sectarianism, um, and standing within the Islamic world, rather than necessarily the have and have not issue. Arab republics have experienced the most unrest and are the ones where the most work is needed and where the most change can occur and most remain vulnerable. Now, good governance provides the solution in all these cases, but in most cases, good governance is merely an aspiration. It's not just that good governance is a new idea in some of the countries. It's also that the government lacks capacity and capability to bring about good governance. And so, in my view, there will be more revolutions and counter-revolutions to come. No surprise, I hear you say. But our engagement, I would say, with these countries has been less effective than I think we would have liked. And I believe it's because we have actually reduced or we have at least appeared to have reduced our ability, our competence and our capacity to engage and gain trust indirectly with carrots as soft power. So US foreign policy is seen by some in the region 
as the key catalyst for the so-called Arab Spring, particularly among those who do not like the outcome. But as furloughs, sequestration, and the drawdowns indicate, the US government will be expected to do more with less. And most Americans are war-weary following Afghanistan and Iraq. Our financial woes, as reflected in our current governance challenges in here in Washington, have somewhat bemused colleagues from overseas, not least of all colleagues who live here. Add to that leaks and exposures derived from what I would call naive and malign actors like Assange, Manning and Snowden, and suddenly you draw the strands together very quickly of substantially diminished trust and thus influence. Many in the region are crying out for our support, but we cannot and will not deliver enough as far as they are concerned. Now, I believe that what the NISA Centre does, it's not an advert, although if you think it is, fine. Um, you know, we are warriors of the mind, um, and our weapon is critical thinking, ultimately leading to countering of terrorism, which is an outcome for a carrot indirect soft power approach. And we build partner capacity, and we build relationships over the long term, and quite often we have used an approach derived from professional military education to shape the conceptual thought process for our key partners. And we use terms like andragogy, adult learning approaches, Bloom's taxonomy for writing learning objectives within curriculum, and we advocate Socratic questioning as an approach to generate critical thinking. Um, and we are constantly fostering these educational approaches we, because we believe our regional partners benefit from the critical thinking derived, and indeed we are invited so to do it. So it's a carrot, indirect, soft power approach, all done on an annual, annual budget that is equivalent to what it costs to buy just one F-16 fighter jet. Now, our military is the most used instrument of hard power, direct power, the stick approach. Um, but our forces are concurrently being restructured for savings and also for drone cyber war with an emphasis on strike through pre pre precision power projection. And most of our soft or some of our soft capability is being stripped out as budgets compress despite the evidence that this move is unwise. And so I posit a point which I think is counterintuitive for policymakers, I fear, that as we become more kinetic and direct and capable in our approaches, the more we need to significantly increase our indirect carrot soft power approaches which are complementary, not a competition. And the origins of the so-called Arab Spring suggest to me that solutions rest in soft, not hard power. It's about people. And ultimately, we need both sticks and carrots to remain relevant as the sole superpower, but applied in the right balance of hard and soft, direct and indirect. As our sticks become more lethal, our carrots need to become ever more tasty. 
And, and I believe that we are at this strategic inflection point right now, and I urge a rethink of the balance between the direct, indirect, stick and carrot approach. And if we don't do it, I think our influence of trust will further wane, further than it is already. And if we don't pick it up, then people like Russia, China, Iran, dare I say it, the French, the Europeans will do it on our behalf. And so our fixation, arguably, with kinetic approaches is not the right basis for our engagement, although I freely accept that the sole superpower does need to have credible sticks and occasionally use them. But boasting our indirect engagement is key to be successful in the way we balance our foreign policy, and I'd be delighted to take your questions at question time. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, two uh, provocative uh, and, and interesting presentations. Uh, from Professor DeRoche, uh, we heard some uh, positive notes about new opportunities and capabilities, uh, enduring partnership with the Gulf, uh, but also some warnings about the dilemma uh, that U.S. decision makers currently face uh, between um, the sort of competing interests of flexibility and rigidity with uh, pursuing both security interests and um, sort of the political reform uh, and human rights agenda uh, that others so strongly support. Uh, and Professor, uh, from Professor Sharp, uh, we heard uh, a discussion of uh, sort of two-sided U.S. approach um, and a plea, perhaps, uh, to focus more on people-to-people -people interaction and um, uh, refocus our efforts on building trust with our partners in the region. Uh, for more commentary now, uh, we turn to uh, Dr. Breslin-Smith, uh, and after that, uh, we'll get uh, to your questions, so I encourage you to uh, think long and hard about those and uh, see the, uh, the attendants sort of circling through the crowd uh, and send those up our way. Thank you. Well, thanks a lot. I, I wish the room was a little smaller so I could see all of you at, at one time. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing experience for me to be with you tonight or this afternoon uh, and reflect a bit about these questions. For 17 years at the War College, I taught geostrategic issues. Um, I taught diplomacy, defense, and development, the three Ds we talked about in the mid-2000s, how U.S. foreign policy should be expressed. And I did look at life, and I taught that level of strategy. How do you look at the, the chessboard, the moves we make at the geostrategic level? And then for these last four years, I've had this remarkable opportunity in my life to actually take a break <laughs> from teaching and from uh, that type of responsibility and just to live my life in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And so for the last four years, I've, I took the advice, actually, of a colleague from NISA who told me two things, uh, to stop talking and to listen and to let Islam wash over me, to let the culture wash over me and not attempt to analyze everything, just live life. And so for the last four years, I really had this amazing, as I said, opportunity to listen. Now, obviously, Saudi Arabia is a society where women and, and men generally work in separate avenues. And so I, I also had the opportunity, I should tell you, for the first time in my life, since I, I had a professional career 
primarily with men in the United States, 17 years on Capitol Hill, when there were very few women in the beginning, and then 17 years at the War College. So for the last four years, I've also had a unique opportunity to be with women and listen to how Saudi women, especially the daughters, the women, girls that are my daughter's age, the next generation, how they see life. So the comments I want to make today, just briefly, um, is to step back a bit. I keep feeling myself have this desire, as I hear all the speakers, to try to dig a little deeper. And as I say, I've always been fascinated by the idea of what's motivation. What motivates a man to pick up a weapon? What motivates a terrorist to have a bomb? What motivates that action? We spent a lot of time talking about tactics, operational activities. But in the last four years, I really, as I say, I tried to give some thought to motivation. What is this debate, this conflict about? Right when I left the War College, uh, I took some time off and wrote the first history of the War College. And it gave me the opportunity to read all of the memoirs and the letters of George Kennan, who was our first deputy commandant and was, as you know, the author of the strategy of containment. And he maintained a long relationship with the War College even after the time he went back to state. And when I looked at Kennan's letters and I looked at his lectures, which were, by the way, published under the title of Measures Other Than War, which is what he taught at the War College, I realized that Kennan brought to that discussion an entire career focused on Russia and the Soviet Union. Kennan brought a depth of understanding. He spoke Russian. He knew Stalin during World War II. He had lived there. He had studied it. That was his professional focus in life. And by the time the Cold War started, Kennan brought to the discussion of strategy depth of understanding. And so he could design a strategy which reflected that depth of understanding. I was teaching at the War College on 911. I actually had an officer from Oman in my class, and we had fascinating discussions at the time. And I watched what we did, how we responded to the strategic threat in that era. When I looked back to Kennan's time, not only did he bring a, a depth of understanding, but at the time, obviously the focus of the competition we saw in economic terms. It was Marxism, a socialist approach, a strong central government. We were fighting the war of ideas in the context of economic issues. And we designed a strategy not only with the knowledge of Russian psychology, the sources of Soviet conduct, the, the article Kennan wrote. We also designed a strategy to respond to those economic qualities. We designed foreign aid because we assumed that the motivation at the time for a man or a woman to join a Marxist party was built on economic motivation, poverty, resentment, class warfare. And so our foreign aid policy from the very beginning, our food aid policy, I was involved in that on the Hill, was designed to address economic motivation. After 9-1-1, I watched as I was teaching at the War College of how would we get our arms around this new strategic threat. And I realized that we have our own cultural issues to deal with. It is very hard for us to talk about religion. It's not polite to talk in 
public, my, my mother taught me. <laughs> it's not polite to talk about certain things. And yet, what we were hearing in the public statements of our opponents were comments made with religious references. When I watched our policy start, as we tried to think about this issue, we again are focused, as it's normal for a nation state, we focused on other nation states. We did try to go back to the idea of economics and think this is a relationship between poverty and there's, there's, no, there's no denying that that's an aspect, but we, we focused on that. But I find in the last four years of lis listening that I can't separate out the fact that my friends in Saudi Arabia told me that Islam is life and how they were struggling themselves within the context of the kingdom and within the broader regional, the friends I met from Egypt and from Jordan, from the region-wide, I had a sense, especially with the next generation, that certainly has aspects to media and social media and all the technology, that there is something happening right now. And that goes to my second point that I would just want to make a comment about. If I'm advocating in the first level that I think we need, in addition to diplomacy and defense, we need depth. We need depth of understanding of the region. And as I say, I acknowledge this is difficult for us to think about. We need depth of understanding of Islam and of the culture and of the history. How do they look at life? That was my goal. I wanted to even for a brief few moments look at life through a Saudi woman's eyes. How does life look to me? I wanted to have an appreciation of that because cultures are different. We have different ways of addressing issues, different ways of raising our children, different ways of thinking about family. All these things have an impact on decision-making. But I also think it's time for a depth of thought in general in the region. And again, my sense of this is, for this next generation of young people, there is a yearning for the culture in the region, for the religion, for the scholars, to come to grips with these major questions of humankind. And the most basic one, and I was talking to the ambassadors today in the region about this, how do groups of people get along with each other? How do men and women live next to each other when they do have different cultures, even within the context of the region? Is there an opportunity right now within the region to think in more deep ways about various approaches to governance within the context of the culture. Different approaches in my own field to macroeconomics. Macroeconomics, the ability to attract private investment, the private sector, in those countries that don't have oil resources is the issue of the day. If you just look at the information on the Twitter account Rebel Economy, you will see a sad tale of Egypt's economic performance regardless of who is in charge. That aspect of depth of thought, of dialogue, when King Abdullah talked about dialogue, I think he touched something. Dialogue within the Muslim community and dialogue across cultures. I had the honor to uh, uh, attend a number of these sessions in Riyadh. 
where there's a national commission on dialogue. And we had, we, I think I took advantage of it three times in the years we were there, of really in-depth discussions of, among women, in our case, deep discussions of these questions. Recently, the king has been more outspoken about this question within the Muslim world. Dialogue. Because as Prince Turkey mentioned today, there is great pain in watching Muslim kill Muslim in Egypt, in, in uh, Syria. <coughs> and it's happening, obviously, in Egypt, too. This challenge of the time, I think, requires and is asked, there's a yearning to really intellectually engage. So my, kind of my final comments about this is we do have a mature defense relationship. We do have traditional avenues of expressing foreign policy in diplomacy, defense, development. What I'm asking for, in some respects, my Tea Party friends would be so happy, I'm asking for a cheaper alternative, which is depth of understanding. To truly think in a, in a more profound way about these basic issues that face all humanity. We know how to protect, we know how to defend, but can we live in a way that addresses needs? I have a sense, looking at the tribal traditions in Saudi Arabia and in the region, there's an opportunity there to rethink some new approaches to this, working their way up. Instead of a parliamentary system coming down with established parties, is there a way of thinking new thoughts, indigenous to the region, on how to do this? I think part of what Bob's talking about in terms of critical thinking, things that are happening within PME, I think you're going to see expressed across the world of knowledge. Because with iPads and social media and online courses, the opportunities for these issues to be accessed across the world are increasing. So I guess what I want to leave you with is the relationships that we have at a defense level, mature, they will have ups and downs. The need now to me is to try for both of our, for the United States point of view and for the region itself, is to top, try to do what I did, what I had the opportunity to stop for a moment, take a breath, think more deeply about, in, case, in our terms in the United States, our own issues, I worked in the Hill for 17 years. I worked in the Hill at a time when we had bipartisan cooperation. My best friends <laughs> were Republicans, <laughs> and I worked for a Democrat. I come back now, and no one seems to be talking to each other at all. I think it's a moment of reflection and, and for us. But I also have high hopes, actually, that this is a unique moment for reflection within the region. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you very much, Shannon, for those uh, very insightful uh, uh, observations. I, I first, uh, before we turn to your questions, I'd just like to give uh, both David and Bob an opportunity to respond to that. As practitioners, as practitioners uh, of PME, and, and uh, you know, as as people on the front lines in the defense sort of lane of the road, with the sort of uh, uh, engagement uh, and reflection 
uh, uh, that Janet discussed. Uh, do, do you have any, any thoughts you'd like to share on? on I, I, I concur with her views. Uh, I would just say you can't have deep engagement and understanding without first having shallow engagement and understanding. And <laughs> whatever it takes to get your foot in the door is what it is. Uh, in, in this time of uh, diminished U.S. budgets, they have to pay for the engagement. What they seem to be paying for is professional military education. Sure. <laughs> and uh, and just just one sort of further privileged question. Um, you you spent a, a fair bit of time on Capitol Hill. Um, uh, David sort of fleshed out this this sort of tricky path we try to walk between rigidity and flexibility, and making sure that what our political system and our democracy sees as the needs that it wants expressed in foreign policy are in fact addressed in our uh, our foreign uh, aid and our defense relationships. Uh, what's your view of this current moment where folks you know, like Senator Leahy and others are really grappling with the way forward and how to walk that balance between meeting our needs, uh, understanding uh, what, the, um, what the needs in the region are uh, at, a, at a deep level, and, and making sure that that's translated into uh, our defense policy going forward? Um, I've, I've only, well, I don't know if this works. Does this work? I've only been back. Um, in the United States about a month, so I, I, and I haven't talked to him yet, but I know that there, there's, it, it, it's an easy hit on the Hill to, to attack foreign, foreign aid. Um, and again, I guess what I'm trying to propose is a deeper thinking about what is it we're trying to do. Uh, some of these issues, I guess what I'm arguing to you, do, does not involve money. Mm -hmm. This is not a question, again, this is not the Cold War, as you said. Much of the legislation, oh goodness, much of the legislation that we worked on in the 70s and the 80s were reflecting the time, the era, the competition with the Soviet Union. Sometimes I have the feeling on the Hill that they are like, they're just dancing so fast, working so hard, watching 24-hour media that again, it's hard for them to stop long enough and say, what, where are we right now and what do we want to do? Um, when I was working on the Senate Agriculture Committee, we rewrote all of our food aid legislation because we decided that that era of our, farm our own uh, agriculture policy had changed. We actually had very active trade. We only now would give farm aid, you know, food aid, when there was a famine not to stimulate trade. We had the luxury, Senator Luger was our ranking member, we had the luxury at the time to really give about eight months to just studying this question and thinking about it. And again, it was an era when we worked together. Senator Dole, Senator Luger, Senator Leahy worked together on that question. So I guess my answer to, to you is that if I could give a wish to the Hill right now, it would be to take the furlough a little longer, <laughs> stay home a little longer. <laughs> Uh, do some reading and do some thinking. And if I had one other wish, it would be to have dinner together with your colleagues from the other party. Uh, thank you for that. We'll, we'll turn now to the, you know, some questions from the audience. Uh, and, the, and the first one I want to turn to here, I, I think, gets at um, the question of trust that was really sort of at the heart of, of Bob's remarks. How, um, how can both U.S. defense policymakers uh, and their counterparts in the region uh, approach questions uh, such as um, this opportunity, potential opportunity uh, and potentially risky opportunity of engagement with Iran 
um, with an eye to this this uh, this sort of trust when you at the same time have sort of um, very disruptive regional developments going on, the conflict in Syria, uh, the military buildup, and then uh, a sort of uh, a change of course by the United States. Um, questions about the sort of fundamentals of the relationship uh, with a close partner like Egypt. Um, what What is the, the panel's advice? What, you know, what are your individual views about sort of managing and maintaining trust in a volatile environment uh, uh, where there are, are really sort of decisive issues on the table uh, that could change the course uh, of a region in a way that we haven't seen it for decades. Um, well, I'd be delighted to be able to answer that. Um, and that's a very, very hard answer. Um, you know, there is a component of trust that comes from compliance. Um, and there are cultures around the world where uh, telling somebody what to do rather than asking them can generate as much trust as, uh, you know, as asking them to do something. Um, I think it's got to be a long-term a long engagement um, whereby you've got to build within the capacity of these governments that we interact with um, and, and develop that over the years. Um, people who, who understand, and in our institutions, people who understand. So that um, you know, when, it, when it gets to a point whereby we need to have some, some discussion and maybe it's drawn to a close, you can, you can pull two people together who have maybe you know, 15 years ago attended an institution of education perhaps to try and empower them to try and find a way forward if conventional approaches um, are not occurring. Um, but you see, what we tend to do is... Um, is we tend to disengage um, and we just pull, pull out completely, leaving, leaving a vast hole, uh, which makes it very different, very difficult. So, for instance, let's just take Iran, for instance. Uh, we have a, a professor at the NISA Center uh, who has met with uh, the, the late president, uh, or the last president, Ahmadinejad, um, in environments um, where he has been able to discuss with him U.S. approaches. Now, this is being cleared uh, officially through our government for him to do it. I have met with Iranian academics in Beirut as part of a conference that occurred in March of this year where the Lebanese invited the Iranians and because there was considered to be no benefit to Iran by us talking to them, and because we are engaging them under academic freedom and Chatham House rule, we were able to talk to them, um, which I think uh, is, is an approach that we should try and foster, because if you can't talk, then you're wasting your time. We maybe have to be imaginative in how we apply our rules and regulations with respect to engaging some of these people. And coming back to my first point about com compellence, which I saw raised a few eyebrows, I mean, you're, you're talking to people if you choose not to talk to them. You know, it's a technique of negotiation. Stay, stay silent. Um, but I think what we need to do is think these things through over a slightly longer term and set conditions for when we may need uh, to engage with these countries in the future. David, anything to add, Jim? Uh, trust, trust is a very amorphous thing, and it's situational. Um, I would just say that um, 
uh, clearly a precedent comes into trust, but the other factor is what the stakes are. So if, if the stakes are very low or if the stakes are very great, then trust seems to be enhanced either because people say, well, it doesn't matter if, it, if the trust is betrayed or because they say we have no option because the consequence of not having trust are, are, so, are incredible. So um, on the one hand, you have like a U.S.-Canada border dispute. On the other hand, you could have, a, uh, again, rapprochement like, uh, you know, uh, Britain and France setting aside their centuries of mistrust and coming to an agreement at Fashoda. Right. Uh, because it, so so yeah, Professor Sharp is is I think correct. It, it requires management. <laughs> um, turning turning to a, a question from the audience uh, about the U.S. image in the world and, and sort of adding one of my own, I, I think about um, you know sort of Arab governments and Arab uh, uh, regional uh, sure um, image in the United States. Um, you know, it seems that many in the Arab world view the United States' recent decision-making as not based on um, sort of the core strategic interests that President uh, and General Austin laid out uh, so, so directly, um, but seems to be rather short-term reactive um, and rather reliant. Um, what is it that regional audiences need to better understand about um, the U.S. national security decision-making establishment, the way that it works, the way that it doesn't work, you know, what are the top three things that you think they ought to understand? And also, you know, because you, you gentlemen uh, um, uh, and, and Dr. Breslin-Smith have spent so much time interacting with folks from the region, what does the Washington audience really need to understand uh, about national security decision-making uh, in, in our sort of key regional partners? Um, that gets lost in this shuffle, um, that becomes so easy to, to sort of stereotype and uh, mischaracterize decision-making processes uh, uh, among partner governments. What do Americans need to understand about our bureaucratic process? Sure. Sort of both, I guess, right? <laughs> it's a sad tale. Um, we, we have a, a, a complicated government. We're a large country, powerful country. We have extensive bureaucracies. Uh, I used to teach a class on bureaucratic culture, uh, which allowed our war, student, our war college students to really think about what is the culture of the State Department? What's the working culture? What is it at DOD? What is it in the intel community? How are the Marines different than the Air Force? And all of that was really helpful because we do have cultural differences. For them to understand, if they're in an interagency meeting, why does the State Department person act the way he or she does? So that type of knowledge of what gets you promoted, I think helps a lot for the actual participate, um, participants in decision making to understand. I think for the government, as our country as a whole, I think for most people busy with their day-to-day -day lives, they hope somebody is, is thinking seriously about this and working it through. They really, we, people have joked about our nation is that while we're the most powerful nation in the world, we're not that interested in the world. And there's something to that. So I think there's, there's a degree of wanting to delegate that responsibility above. I think for foreign countries looking at us, and again, one of the things I was trying to get at is, maybe we're also at a moment in life, and especially in the region, where the Middle East itself is going to stand up and take responsibility and, and an engagement with itself. That our role is, when requested support, 
but is there going to be a new intellectual engagement there that would stimulate a creative period that we have never seen before in terms of new ways of approaching the issues, as I said before, of governance and macroeconomics, the two key issues of the region? Uh, yeah, I, I would, uh, I was, that's interesting, this. Um, <laughs> I would say the top three messages from them to us, oh sorry, from us to them, we, we should be communicating to them um, that our values are enduring. Okay, I don't think that necessarily is, is clearly articulated. Um, but that our politics and our policies are not. Our system of government prevents it. But our values are enduring and that we are generally ahistorical. So don't, don't tell us all about your problems from 30 years ago because we don't care. We're in the solution set. We're Americans. We want to fix things. We want to move forward. Not all this what happened before. That's what I would say would be, uh, and their message to us, I think, would be something like um, that they view their values as similar. And I mean some family values uh, and some beliefs, um, some similarities. Um, that their politics are enduring rather than not, as in our case, and that they are entrenched by history rather than apolitical. And, you know, we should maybe think more about the similarities rather than the differences. Um, the point I would, I would make to observers, both foreign and American, of the U.S. government is that people tend to assume rational actors. And exactly as Dr. Breslin-Smith said, um, bureaucratic politics and structure are, are not necessarily rational, nor do they produce a rational outcome. The U.S. government was not designed by an intelligent being. It is scabbed up over a period of years in response to various crises. And typically, the pendulum swings from underreaction to overreaction, underreaction. And so what we've seen is the formation of a series of bureaus and offices that have specialized responsibility. Uh, I sometimes joke that if a nuclear weapon were to go off at the Panama Canal, for example, there'd be somebody in the US government whose most important information you needed to find out would be how many unionized dock workers were killed as a result of that. And, uh, you know, typically we used to joke at defense that uh, the, the definition of an interagency meeting is uh, a meeting held in the White House grounds where the rest of the executive departments watch uh, two bureaus of the State Department argue with each other. Um, you know, because you have a Bureau of Human Rights, you have a Bureau of Nonproliferation, you have a Bureau of Economic Opportunity, you have a Bureau of Oceanographic Affairs. These are all smart people assigned to these bureaus. So, you know, if you take a smart person, you say your job is the promotion of uh, uh, international labor freedom, then that's going to be the most important, that's going to be the lens through which they approach the world. So, uh, what can you do? Well, and I'm, I'm an inherently optimistic person because I survived the drive from Mostar to Bosnia in a snowstorm with Colonel Sinnott driving. So I'm optimistic. Um, typically, government changes in response to one of two things. The first is exceptional leadership. And you only get that like once every two generations or so. I'm talking Robert McNamara, and he only did about, about half of it. I'm talking like J. Edgar Hoover. That's extremely rare. The second time it changes is in response to a crisis. And right now, we're in a fiscal crisis. So the Department of Homeland Security, which most people agree was a good thing, that came around as a result of the crisis wrought by 
there is an opportunity here as money becomes tighter and tighter to rationalize our foreign affairs infrastructure, defense, state, etc. And uh, that would mean, ideally I would hope, that we break out of the specialized bureau structure where you have a situation where you know, the person responsible for a specific issue is waiting for the opportunity that his bureau can flex his muscles and instead uh, organize the executive department along the lines that reflects our national interests in each thing. And the logical, the logical uh, leader of those processes should be the ambassador, the president's representative, who can be fired at the whim of the president if he doesn't do it. Now, the, the key qualifier to that is not just the executive department has to change. We saw this with the Department of Homeland Security where the Congressional Oversight Committees did not reform themselves. You know, there is a Department of Homeland Security committee, but uh, there's also, you know, the, the head of Customs and Border Protection still is confirmed by the Finance Committee for the revenue thing. So there has to be a corresponding reform in Congress as well. And that's what's really difficult because that's individual members and committee chairs and power things. Thank you. Um, I've been directed uh, to, to let you know we'll be taking a break uh, at the conclusion of this panel, which um, will be now. But uh, uh, thanks very much. I think that was a rather unconventional and, and very interesting discussion. Um, and I encourage you all to, to continue your conversations uh, over some coffee. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.